Hello, this is Erin Weir. The journey to being a successful creative entrepreneur is filled with challenges, hard work, and occasional high points. You have the opportunity to minimize the challenges and hard work by learning from experts, mentors, and leaders that have traveled the same road before you. The Creative Genius Podcast celebrates you and your hard work and helps you shortcut the path to profit and renewed passion. Enjoy this episode with my co-host, Gail Dobie of Gail Dobie Coaching and Consulting. Brands endure because they deliver what they promise. And what about your brand? Does it truly reflect what's authentic about you and your work? Does it have integrity? Don't try to guess what clients want. Be true to yourself, show them who you are, and let them decide. It's an honor to introduce to you today's guest, Charles Spencer. He's a global keynote speaker, broadcaster, and documentary series writer and presenter for networks such as NBC, Grenada TV, and the History Channel. As a print journalist, he has written for major newspapers, both in the UK and the USA. He serves as patron of the Friends of Cynthia Spencer Hospice, the Brain Tumor Trust, and Thomas's Fund in England, and on the board of Whole Child International in the USA. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate it. I, I'm thinking it's late afternoon for you. It is. It's a beautiful day here for a change as well. But Gail, how interesting your piece was. So I'm, I'm, I'm under some pressure following that. So uh, here I am. <laughs> You're way too kind. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. We're excited to hear from you today. And we want to talk to you a little bit about your inspiration for design. So I'll start with that. Yes. Well, I think uh, for me with this uh, brand, Allthorpe Living History, which is, is based on my family's house, which is where I'm talking to you from today. It's actually, uh, we, we've been living here, my family, since it was built in 1508. Uh, we were originally sheep farmers nearby. But as, as we uh, managed to make our way in the world, I, I think the Spencers had a particularly distinctive brand of style and taste, whether it was politically or in terms of the look of their houses. and. Over the centuries, a lot of these houses are no longer occupied and, and things got really concertinaed in. So the collection at Althorpe, which is, you know, I think it's got 100 rooms and it's, uh, everyone always asks me in America how many square feet it is, but it's, a, it's an awful lot of square feet. There's about 40 <laughs> bedrooms. And, um, and essentially, I suppose the, the way I see uh, my role here of continuing Althorpe as a, as a living historic house, because of course, sadly, 99% of the great houses here are no longer in private hands, but Althorpe is, was to look at different ways of telling the story. And actually, when I was approached by Paul Maitland-Smith, who was mentioned uh, with, with honor in, in, in the introduction, I was intrigued by his tale. You know, I, I had met various people who wanted to do something, licensing, branding, or whatever with Allthorpe. And I think about 15 years ago, I, I didn't really understand the concept, but I was very defensive about my family's story being attached to somebody else's enterprise. And so what happened was I was actually completely convinced by the very charismatic Paul Maitland-Smith of uh, Theodore Alexander at the time. 
that they wanted to do a very, very good job with this. And that that's what made that's what resonated with me more than anything else. And also it was a it's a wonderful income stream. Everything that this uh, all thought living history makes all over the world now uh, gets put back into the fabric of this house. I, I love that. You know, I love as I see it, these reproduction handmade pieces of furniture are really paying their dues now. They've been housed by Althorpe uh, for several hundred years, and now their reproductions are helping to keep the place in, in a very good way. So it's all good. It's a good story, and it's a story I'm very delighted to tell, as, as was mentioned in the intro as well. Uh, my passion is nonfiction. I'm a historian. I, I, I was a historian at Oxford University. And although I diverted off for 10 years to work for NBC's Today Show, my passion was always the writing part, the scripts, et cetera, and telling the tale. That's what I'm meant to do. And, um, you know, my latest book, The White Ship, is about a, a story from 900, a true story of 900 years ago about a, uh, the Titanic of the Middle Ages when the only heir to the throne goes down. Now that, you know, how, how do you tell a story like that? And I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not here to talk about a book, but when I presented it to the publishers, they said, well, that does sound a long time ago. And I said, well, just think of it as Game of Thrones meets Titanic. So it's encapsulating the tale so that when you're telling a story, you're not boring people rigid with dry historical facts in my case, but you're trying to bring the past alive. And that's really the story that I try and do, whether it's in a book or with this collection. That's wonderful. So how have you brought your passion for history into your storytelling? Well, particularly with the furniture, I was very lucky, you know, um, times were very tough. I, I'm not expecting anyone to feel sorry, but times were very tough about 100 years ago for 50 years for the British aristocracy. In terms of falling very much out of fashion, they were not, uh, not an institution that people had much sympathy for. And after the First World War, uh, so pretty much exactly 100 years ago, they were, they were subjected to really very high tax rates. My grandfather in the 50s was being taxed at 98% of his income. And so you can see why most of these collections fell away. They were sold or the houses were given away. I mean, people just couldn't get rid of them. I read about one house, like Althorpe, which was sold to some American film producers, and they burnt it down for one scene of a movie, this house that had stood for hundreds of years. So you have to realize that there was a period where houses such as this really meant very little. I mean, some of your uh, participants today may have seen either the television series or the movie of Brideshead Revisited, which is a book written just after the Second World War about a great house and a family that live in this house, rather like my family do now. And it was very much in 1945, a farewell to these sorts of places because they were thought to be completely irrelevant and a millstone. And of course, they're incredibly expensive to maintain. So, so what I've done is bring in the true story of these pieces. And I'm very fortunate that, that my grandfather devoted his time not to trying to sell off the heirlooms, but to living here very, very modestly. To the extent, actually, that in 1969, when my grandparents had, were celebrating their golden wedding anniversary, they had to sell some bits and pieces out of the estate workyard to fund an oak tree to go in the garden because they were living here like poor as church mice, but determined to keep the show on the road. 
And I find that very compelling, that that sacrifice, that self-sacrifice to try and keep this going down another generation or two is, is really something that we can all relate to. Uh, there are members of families who do very noble things, whatever their backgrounds. But what I try and do is, well, what I do is behind me, there are some modern books, but over, right over this ear, <laughs> you can see leather-bound volumes that uh, were handmade by my grandfather. And he went through the record room here, uh, family muniments, you know, old receipts, et cetera. And luckily he had the brain of a sort of museum curator. And he went through every single piece in this collection. And he found out who made it, how much it cost, when and if it's ever been repaired. Uh, and all these extraordinary things. So we know exactly every detail of every piece. And actually, I know, uh, you know, the designers who are watching today will know that it's really important when you're presenting to a potential client that there is a story, a romance to the object or the material. And I mean, we are knee deep in that here. And that was very compelling. So when Theodore Alexander when Paul Maitland-Smith and his design team pitched up here 15 years ago, I think it was, and said, can we look around? I said, well, help yourself. And they booked themselves into a local hotel. And about three days later, they appeared. And they said, we have 10,000 images of pieces of furniture we want to work with. So I said, well, that sounds like a promising start. And then they put together a beautiful collection um, of handmade furniture. They showed me how good they were. We have a piece here which belonged to George Washington's family, and it's called the Washington Chest. It's an oak blanket chest from 1600. And um, the, the Washingtons were uh, cousins of my family, and they fell on hard times. And we put them up a mile that way in a cottage uh, called Washington Cottage. And inside this beautiful piece, which I still use for my tennis gear, actually, the original, but anyway, uh, everything should be used. Uh, is, a, is a sworn affidavit on the inside of the lid from the priest saying this belonged to the Washington family. And it's, it was from uh, the early 1800s, this, this affidavit. So they not only copied the piece of furniture, but they copied the sworn affidavit inside. And even uh, on the top, this little red ring in the wood, which was from a wine glass from who knows who left their red wine dripping. But they reproduced that and they sent me this copy and said, what do you think? And I put them next to each other and they were, I mean, you couldn't choose which was the original. And so I feel very lucky that these stories of my family, which are connected to these pieces, can be shared honestly with people to bring these pieces alive. Storytelling brings these people alive. But the most important thing from my brand's perspective which actually dovetails of what you were talking about with an integrity earlier, Gail, is that you have to tell the whole truth. So I'm never going to cut corners and come up with a better tale. It's going to be the real thing, even if it's, well, we know it's built in, originally in 1750 and it stood in the ballroom at Spencer House. We will only say what we know to be true. You cannot mess around with a brand at all in terms of integrity. We all know that, but particularly with a historical one you have to stick to the known facts. Do you have some other pieces that are favorites of yours that you'd like to share? Yeah, actually, this bookcase behind, I mean, I'm just going to move this around a bit. It's absolutely beautiful. This uh, break-fronted bookcase with the drawers underneath. Well, that, that was made for my family 
1750. We have a house still in London called Spencer House, which is uh, used by the Rothschild banking family now. We still, we still own the, the freehold. And my family have always collected books. That's, that was their big passion. In fact, in this very large house, uh, nine of the ground floor rooms were part of a library originally. And I had an ancestor who was, I, I think, addicted to buying books. Uh, he, he, he just bought everything that he could. He had three original Shakespeare folios and 57 Caxton Bibles. These are the original printed Bibles in England and 43,000 very rare first editions. So I like the fact that we still have these. And actually, it's so interesting. When, when I, I, I go to America quite a lot, I mean, I, I'm married to a, an American as well. I've promoted the brand. I've been to dozens of stores where the Althorpe uh, Living History line is. And these pieces behind me have done particularly well in Texas. And it, I'm afraid there is a sort of cliche, uh, which I found to be true. When I go to different places in America, you know, the Texans do like the big pieces, you know. And of course, in Manhattan, they go for the very fine pieces. There's a, a beautiful box, sort of twice the size of a computer, I guess, carved in the shape of a butterfly. And that's based on the uh, tapestry and embroidery box of my uh, great great grandmother. She used to keep her things in that. And so that's been taken not just as a box, but also it's been made into a side table. So very clever reuse of the original pieces here. Uh, mm. We have some stunning pieces uh, all around the house. I mean, I'm, looking, I'm sitting in a room surrounded by history. And actually, I have, you know, in London, I have a modern, well, a contemporary house. So I can play with that there. But I don't, I, I have added to the art collection here. We have um, 650 paintings on the wall that have been collected by my family. And, you know, I've only been here for 29 years of the 500 odd, but uh, about 25 of those are mine. Uh, well, they're not mine. I've, they are part of the collection now, but they were selected by me because I think that we've all been around many museums and appreciated them for what they are. But if you're going around something that is a historic home, it still has to develop and um, improve. And that's what I try. Well, improve is probably too, too arrogant to work, but it's, it has to evolve. Otherwise, it becomes a museum. And that's very off-putting to uh, people when they, when they are embracing the idea of a family living in one place for 19 generations. You know, my, my seven children, I have just the seven, uh, are the 19th generation uh, to live at Althorp. And, um, and I love that. You know, my little daughter, I have a 30-year-old all the way down to an eight-year-old. She's nine next week. You've got a wonderful surprise for her, uh, which I, I couldn't even share. But anyway, it's going to be a, an experience of a lifetime. Um, and, and I love the fact that they're going down the staircase, which their ancestors went down four or 500 years ago. Uh, my daughter right now, uh, so I could do this, pod, this broadcast with you, uh, is off riding and she's riding out of a stables that my family built in 1729. And I say this all with huge humility. It's not a, these are not both. I'm stunned that all these things exist. You know, they're so wonderful. And imagine how lucky I am as a historian to live in a place of history. I mean, it's really extraordinary as a privilege. And I do see it as part of my genuine duty to share my good fortune with other people. And I have to say, when I meet people who are uh, collectors of the Althorpe Living History Line, because it tends to be quite a lot of people collect them, 
um, I think, well, what an incredible compliment to my ancestors, because everyone watching this today will have been through the trauma of a, a previous generation passing away. And then what do you do? You look at the furniture you want to keep or, you know, or, or whatever it is from their, from their legacy. And then you might give X to so-and-so and Y to so-and-so. But if you think about this house passing down 19 generations, every piece of furniture that is historic has survived that test generation after generation. So you end up with really classical, beautiful European and English uh, objects, and and that's the that's the uh, cornerstone of the All Thought Living History Collection. Do you get to choose some of the items that you're reproducing, or was that selected by the Theodore Alexander Group? I I, I have kept the veto, um, just because my name's on the brand. So I've never had a problem. You know, it's been 15 years now, and I, in fact, there's only one piece I said. I don't think so. And it turned out by mistake, somebody in Theodore Alexander had added it to the list. It was from another collection. So luckily I was awake that day and it wasn't a piece I recognized. So that was good. I mean, in that they do such a good job and I'm not here as a sales pitch, you know, obviously uh, they've asked me to be here, but uh, I can honestly say they're, they're, they're incredibly good at uh, getting things right. And, and, and the original pieces are so tasteful. It's very hard to go wrong. So I suppose mm. where, where they need my input is on adjusting things. So, for instance, we have this beautiful lantern in the hallway here. And it's very ornate, but it's, you know, nobody, there's very few houses that need that. So what they've done is they've turned it into a, a, a very similar design for a uh, coffee table using the, 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 the framework and design to do that. And it's very clever. And I wouldn't have thought of that. You know, I'm, I'm just a, a simple overprivileged historian. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a designer. But what I can do is see if it's going to work or not, because I think, well, would I want it? And, and, and there's nothing in this collection. I think they've had about 700 pieces out of all pop so far, which have gone to high point and then, and then on around the world. I, I've never had a, a problem. I've been proud of every piece, actually. Mm. Well, they're beautiful for sure. And I love that piece behind you. That's a stunning piece. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And I, I mean, I, this is rather crude doing it like this, but we also do these paintings. These are rather fantastic. They're, they're early 19th century. There's about 30 in this room of bulls. And, and, and look, they're not great art, but they are fun. And um, they are the legacy. I, the third Earl Spencer, who, who lived, uh, he was in charge here in the uh, early 1800s and campaigned against slavery and for getting the middle class in England the vote. And he, he, he was a sort of, uh, he was leader of the House of Commons and all that sort of thing. But he didn't care about politics at all. He just did it out of duty uh, and did what he thought was correct. His passion was farming. And so I think it's very important to salute that. And, and he didn't contribute anything else to the art collection except 30 paintings of his bulls. But in that, <laughs> that mattered so much to him. Why not? They should be enjoyed. So there are reproductions of these, which I think look fantastic as, as, as part of the Theodore Alexander offering. So how do you share the story of your pieces to inspire the buyer so that they want to create their own legacy with these pieces? We uh, originally, um, there's, there's these old volumes we have behind us. We reproduce 
very similar ones to that when we were originally doing Theodore Alexander. And they are, they're hardback, beautiful. Actually, I see somebody's borrowed the one I was going to show you, but they are beautiful photography with the true story behind uh, about a hundred of the pieces. And that was really important. So Paul Maitland-Smith, when, when he convinced me to do this, towards the end of his very long and distinguished career, and he said he wanted to go out with Althorpe as his swan song. And I got it. I really believed him. And he, he was true to his word. And so originally, when Althorpe was rolled out to the market, if you wanted to have it in your showroom, you had to commit to a certain square footage. It was quite a lot. I can't remember what it was, but it was a lot with all the branding around it. And it was a standalone selection. And each piece had the story next to it. And what we do now is we make sure that everyone who buys these pieces, that there is a tag on everything which explains what it is inside all the furniture or on the base of it, if it's, say, upholstery, is the family stamp. You know, so it's a metal coat of arms inside, uh, like a coin, really, uh, on the inside of the drawer of, of, of those pieces or, or my family's coat of arms on the base of the upholstery otherwise. That is a sort of mark of authenticity. And the full tale is available on every piece. I love that. You know, I mean, I, I love stories. I mean, the whole point to me of history is not snobbery. It's not the distant past. It's people watching. And I love that you can connect a piece of fine furniture or a piece. Actually, we have a sort of sub-brand, which is more rustic, still based on the furniture here. But you have a direct connection with true stories from the past. and. To me, that's so much more meaningful. I'm not criticizing other people because, of course, you know, they're, they're not fortunate in having this sort of rich history. And I, I realize how lucky we are. It means so much more if you can connect it to an exact period and a person and a manufacturer. And my family were lucky. You know, a lot of um, people from privileged positions in England, they sent their eldest sons abroad on what was known as the Grand Tour. And that was around France and Italy and other parts of Europe to uh, stop them just thinking about fox hunting and women, uh, they'd be sent to learn a bit about uh, culture. And that, so they would come back, they'd go with a tutor, and they would come back with some appreciation of what was going on overseas. And so we have an enormous uh, amount of paintings in this collection from foreign parts, you know, Rubens and and uh, Van Dyck did work in England, but when he was uh, not here, and all sorts of great artists, and, and even American artists like John Singleton Copley and, and Sargent. Um, but the same with the furniture. Uh, they spotted really beautiful pieces of furniture. We've got a, uh, a, an Italian piece from the 14th century, a beautiful chest with incredible carving on it. Uh, we have a, a very tall back chair uh, from uh, 1600 from... Scotland of all places, but uh, not all English, and, and they all have a rich story behind them. And then, and then they were lucky enough, of course, when they were uh, furnishing their, their, their large houses, they had several at the time, they were lucky enough to be able to commission the great work, the, the great artists of their time to produce them. So we have got Chippendale upstairs, and we have got all sorts of things here. And uh, how wonderful, you know, that over the generations, this, this became a collection. No one set out to make it a collection. Uh, it's just generation after generation leaving their mark behind. And I often think, you know, when the first person lived here in Splendor in 1508, 
did they really think these things, what, what their descendants collected would bring joy to so many around the world? You know, I, I, when was it? Just before the pandemic broke out, I was in New Delhi in India and went to a reception there with all this enormous number of all thought living history pieces everywhere. It's incredible to think that that was holding a, probably the most interesting reception that night in Delhi, that these people coming to look at reproductions of things from this corner of England, where I'm 70 miles north of London, in beautiful countryside. This is an area where people tended to want to have their country houses because it was within range of London. It's just so lovely to see the global reach, really. I mean, it's incredible to me. Have you thought about doing some videos and getting yourself on camera and talking about each of these particular pieces that are in the collection? Because I think it would be wonderful to hear it from someone who actually is part of the family. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Uh, I, I will put that to them. I mean, I do, I do quite a lot of social media uh, myself. And so particularly with my books, I, if I have a new book out, I will tell a story about a different character in the book, always a true character, you see. And I'll do that sort of once a week while the book's sort of current and relevant. And I think you're right. It does sort of bring it alive and, and to show the piece individually because they, they demand, well, they certainly deserve their own spotlight because they're so interesting and they're so diverse. There's so many different things. I mean, one of my favorite pieces here is this very, very long. It must be about uh, 50 feet long oak table, which was made from oak in the park here. That was made for the servants in the old days to eat from. And we still have a room, the room where that comes from, the old servants' hall. You know, this is when these houses, yeah, a lot of your people watching today will have seen Downton Abbey or, or, or upstairs, downstairs, or whatever, or Gosford Park. And honestly, that to, to think of the tales they must have talked about around this table, the gossip uh, and the intrigue. And of course, actually, the romance, you know, the, the, these houses, these great houses were the center of the community for so many people. And I can go into the local village here and, and I can meet people whose family have been connected for ages here. In fact, we have a wonderful, he was a gardener here, he's now semi-retired, but he helps with fine work, you know, when we're polishing very fine things. And he comes in. And he reminds me that the staircase was modified in 1670 and his ancestors helped do it. So you think of the extraordinary legacy of not just this house for my family, but for those people who lived around here. And I'm always finding new things out. You know, you'd have thought at the age of 57, I'd have got on top of it, but I find new things all the time. And in fact, last week in a local auction, a farmer tipped me off that my great uncle had a, a black sheep great uncle who was a very entertaining man. We were never allowed to meet him because he was considered incredibly <laughs> naughty, which made him even more intriguing. But great uncle Georgie, I must tell you a funny story about him, actually. So unfortunately, the bottle was his enemy. And he is the only man to have the rather appalling distinction of having been chucked out of the Royal Navy and the Army as an officer. Uh, anyway. <laughs> My family thought we'd had enough of him. And so they paid him off. They, the lawyers sat him down as a young man and said, look, you brought so much disgrace to this family and we'd rather you lived abroad. And here's a very large check, but you have to live abroad. And Uncle Georgie was way ahead of them and he signed it. 
and went and lived off an island on, on, on just off England. wasn't an idea at all. They hoped he was going to go and live in Sydney or Toronto, I think. And he lived this quiet life. He's a very amusing man, I gather. And he um, he was he had to be invited to my sister's wedding, and my sister was very young, of course. And Buckingham Palace tried to help her with her guest list. And they said, look, you really do need to ask everyone up to and including second cousins so we don't have a, a problem with somebody going rogue on us. And my sister Diana said, but surely not Uncle Georgie. And they said, well, who's he? And she said, well, it's my grandfather's brother. And she said, well, he has to come. Now, Uncle Georgie had not been invited to much. And this became evident on the day of the wedding because he appeared wearing spats, which were in great fashion in 1930s London, these sort of footwear. But nobody had asked him to anything elegant for about 50 years, and he turned up for that. Anyway, I found his diaries as a young boy growing up 100 years ago, and it was fascinating. The room's the same, of course. You know, he's writing in 1918. uh, He was training to be in the Navy in the First World War. And then his sort of terrible homesickness leaving this place, which resonates. You know, he he was talking about all the bits he loves here, the, the landscape around here. And you realize, you know, this, this is the point of history to me, is that, yes, you know, the decades and the centuries roll by, but people don't change. And that's what's so intriguing to me. All these great people from history, it doesn't matter whether you're thinking of George Washington or Elizabeth I or whoever, they, they were dealing with very human things. And um, it was family matters and it was love life and it was tragedy and, and hopes and dreams. And I think it's very important with history, whether it's through an object in a furniture collection or whether it's through a book or whatever it is, is not to be put off by the distance of time because we haven't changed as a, as a species very much in the past few hundred years. Interesting. And I think that um, our audience would like to hear a short story from your new book if you have some time to do that. And then we'll get back to a few more questions about your um, Absolutely. Well, I'd love to tell you about my new book. Uh, it's called The White Ship, and it comes out in the States in October. And I'm sorry, I have to share this with you, but I've just found out tomorrow it's number two in the bestsellers in the UK. So, phew. <laughs> I've been very lucky, very lucky in the past, but this one's caught a wave. And I'll tell you what it is. I'm of a generation of Englishmen, English people, I mean, who had to put up with a very broad historical uh, education. So now, I'm sure the same in the States, history is an optional subject at school, but when I was a kid, it really wasn't. So we learned little pockets of history, which are now sadly forgotten. And so I've always made it my career's job to, I think, shine a light on people or, 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 or events that are forgotten. So the white ship is a true vessel that existed 900 years ago. But what I found so interesting about it was I'm basically going back to the time of William the Conqueror, uh, and and he obviously conquered England in 1066. And then he had a very troubled relationship with some of his children. He had nine children, four sons, and he he, he really didn't like, I think hate's too strong a word, but he really didn't like his oldest son and heir, Robert, who he nicknamed Kurt Hose, which means short legs, which shows the sort of disrespect for his son. (laughs) And... um, he, he essentially was at civil war, in civil war with his own eldest son. But when he was dying uh, after a terrible accident, he, he grew to an enormous size in, in late middle age and ended up being hit by the front of his saddle, the pommel of his saddle, 
which punctured the lining of his stomach, and he gradually slipped away. And he was tended by his fourth and youngest son, uh, a boy called Henry. And William the Conqueror revealed to those around his deathbed that he was going to leave very reluctantly. He was going to leave Normandy to his eldest son, who he loathed, England to his second son, who he adored. And then his third son had sadly died in in an accident. But the fourth son, Henry, was only going to get money. And Henry was very upset. He said, I've always been your most loyal son, and this is very unfair. And the father, as he was dying, said, one day you'll be greater than both your brothers. And actually, this came to pass. You know, after, after William the Conqueror died, the two elder brothers colluded to take everything off Henry. And he actually ended up in prison at one point. Uh, his brothers just used him as a, a plaything. And nobody realized what a, a, an amazing man he was. And you cut to the summer of 1100, and Henry's in a hunting party in England, and his brother is the king, King William Rufus. And that afternoon, we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know the one main event was that the king died. He was hit by an arrow in the chest, and he fell to the ground, and he snapped off the shaft, but he couldn't get the arrow out, fell on his chest and died instantly. And people said this was because God wanted to curse him. You know, he had no chance of absolution of penitence or whatever. So it was assumed he was going to go to hell. And the youngest brother, rather than look after his brother's body, galloped as fast as he could, picked up the uh, royal treasury and then went on to London to be crowned. And really what the white ship, my, my book is about is the true story of this man, this young man seeing off all these, uh, contenders to the throne, becoming the most successful king of England for many a year. He, he set up things which we still live with today. Remember, this is 900 years ago, but he set up the exchequer, which is still what the treasury is called today. He made sure that every coin that was meant to come to the crown did so. And the sheriffs who controlled all the areas of England had to come twice a year and put their money on this large table with a checkerboard cloth on it. That's why it became known as the Exchequer. And they did the sums and sent them back to go and get what was still needed. And he did terrible mutilations. That's why I mentioned Game of Thrones, terrible mutilations to anybody who messed around with the coinage. If you had the license to mint coins, you did not want to mess around with it. Terrible things, which I can't, can't really repeat here. He also did the, the main thing that an English... Uh, king at this time had to do was one, produce an heir, and two, defeat the French. That's always been on the to-do list of English monarchs, is defeat the French. The main thing he had to do is produce an heir, and he married a a descendant of Alfred the Great. Uh, She was this wonderful princess from Scotland. Her father had killed Macbeth, the real Macbeth, actually, who was actually a very great king of Scotland, I'd like to mention. He wasn't some miserable, neurotic, henpecked husband, as Shakespeare said. And um, they produced a son, the one son and heir, who was a prince called William. And in my potted history, which I'm going to give you now, essentially between 1100 when he became king and 1120, Henry became the greatest man in Europe. He he had defeated the French uh, repeatedly to the point where they had to acknowledge his son as the future king of England and Duke of Normandy. And then exactly 900 years ago, Henry arrives in the, the port of Barfleur, which is in the north of France. It's very near Omaha Beach, actually. Uh, it's in Normandy. And this was the stopping off point for a uh, great Englishman going back to England from France. 
And when he arrived in this port, a man steps forward and he says, I'm the son of the man who was captain of your father, William the Conqueror's flagship in 1066. And I demand the right to take you back across the channel in my ship, the greatest ship of its day, the white ship. Henry I was quite a curmudgeon, and he just said, look, I've, I've made all my arrangements, but I do admit that the white ship looks magnificent, and I would like you to take as a treat my one legitimate son, uh, my various illegitimate sons who he acknowledged, and then the great generals, the bishops, the great bureaucrats, and 300 of the most important people in England and Normandy got on the white ship. And while the king pushed off in a sedate fashion to go back to England, uh, the younger, more glamorous group surrounding the young Prince William got very, very drunk, and they stupidly got the crew drunk. And then to the superstitious mind, they made an absolutely crucial error of driving away some monks who had come to bless the white ship for it set sail. And this was seen as a, a, an insult to God. And then literally they went a mile offshore at high speed. Uh, the, the, the mad idea went up that the crew would try and overtake Henry I's ship, even though it had set off several hours earlier. So the crew were bending their backs. The sail was dropped too soon. And the white ship hit a rock. Uh, it's called the Key Birth Rock. And I've been there several times uh, recently. And nobody could swim at this time. It's rather an extraordinary thought that almost nobody could swim, just a few people whose job it was to retrieve nets or whatever. And these people tumbled into the water. The prince was about to get away. He was bundled in by his bodyguards into the one lifeboat that uh, the white ship had. And he was being rowed to shore and to safety when he heard his half-sister calling for help. And he decided he had to go back to retrieve her. But while they were rowing this little boat through all these people in the water, uh, they, they grabbed hold of it, the ones who were drowning, and they took the little boat down and they all went down, uh, apart from luckily uh, for history uh, and actually for my book, because otherwise it would have been a very slim tome, uh, a butcher managed to survive the night, uh, a man called Barreau. He was the humblest passenger on board and he had pursued the aristocrats on board to get his bills paid for his meat. And he managed to stay alive through the night. And it's his eyewitness account of all that happened that is part of the book. But really what happened afterwards was so terrifying because for the next 15 years, King Henry I tried to have another son, but couldn't. And when he dies, the second half of the book is all about the utter chaos. I mean, the historians of the time talk about blood descending on the land and God forgetting England and all that. It was, it was a time of absolute uh, terror. And it was all because this boy died on the white ship. And, and then we ended up getting a, a royal family from this time until the Tudors took over. They were called the Plantagenets. And they would not have been on the English throne if it hadn't been for one shipwreck uh, 900 years ago. So that's what I've tapped into. So, uh, it's been fantastic. And I've been, I've been diving down there. Uh, we found a 10-feet strip of um, boat last time we went under the mud. We've been using very high-tech uh, scientific instruments, and it's from the right period. We have a record of all the great ships that have uh, gone adrift on that rock. And I'm going back at the beginning of September to um, have another look, uh, just to the French government have finally given us permission to bring the piece up. Um, and it looks very, well, it looks absolutely spot on for something that's built in 1100. But I have to say, I won't believe it until the scientists have told me for true that it's true. 
the book and writing the book, fascinating. Diving for the, uh, the wreck. I thought we had a one in a hundred chance, but we, we, we worked out the tides and where everything should be. And we found this piece within an hour. How fascinating. Well, I have asked everyone to order your book. And if they order it, it's going to help your numbers. So hopefully we'll it would help it my enough. numbers. That'd be very kind. But no, I just, I love storytelling. I mean, you know, when I was working on the Today Show in the 80s and 90s uh, at NBC, I, I enjoyed going to all these places. Fascinating. But at the same time, it was writing the scripts and trying to make it digestible and fun for people that really counted. And so then after that, I've done, um, yeah, seven books and I'm, I'm, I'm writing an eighth now. And I, I, I love it. I love bringing these things to life because they shouldn't be forgotten. These are, these are moments of high drama. And if I can just bring some people's attention to it, then, then that's great. And the same, you know, the same with the furniture. I love storytelling and, and, and it's such a privilege to bring these people back to life. And, and I, I realized actually very soon after I took over, I took over very young here. I was 27. My father died far too young. I realized that the ladies in the portraits had been painted at their most beautiful and the men at their most powerful. That once you get a hold of that, then you realize you're dealing with actually false facades because this is what they wanted to present to the world. And I love the diaries. I mean, even the really sad ones. I was reading my great-grandmother, Margaret Spencer, uh, died on Independence Day, uh, 1906, in childbirth. And I was reading her husband's account. It's so devastating. They were madly in love. And she was told not to have another child. And she, they did. And she dies in his arms. And, and it's so poignant. You know, and you just think, how fortunate am I? I mean, Everyone watching here has great-grandparents who had fascinating things happen to them, terrible things, happy things. And, and very few of us are lucky enough to have a resource such as this where I can dip back into history and see what made these people tick. Well, it'll be fun to read your book, and that will be on my reading list right ahead of this. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the other thing that was coming to mind as I was listening to you tell your stories is that it would be so wonderful to have a documentary that you do about your life. And uh, maybe somebody else suggested a podcast. I don't know if you're doing a podcast, but if so, we'd love to know that. Yeah, I'm not actually. I love podcasts, don't you? I mean, I've, I've become addicted to various ones. I like such a, you know, the variety of things you get to learn about. I mean, I do find that. Yeah, I should, do, I should look at that. I don't think a documentary of my life would be very interesting, except probably to my children who would fall about laughing. Um, I think there is something in the pieces here and bringing them to life. I think that's a really good idea. You know, it's all about the past not being the enemy and not being frightening. I think that would be re that's really interesting because we can learn so much from the past. I loved all the things you were saying earlier, Gail, with the you know, how to, you know, focus and all of these things. But, and I agree, I agree, you can't get anywhere without focusing. My goodness, if somebody writes a book, you know, writing a book is a, you, you want to know right at the beginning, you're going to finish that book because it's, you know, each of my, because I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of research and all that, they take me three years each. And you don't want to start a book and then lose interest in it. But I, I think you're right on that. But I do also believe that we can learn so much from the past. And I'm not encouraging everyone to suddenly become a history major. That's not practical. But what works about the past is that it is still relevant. And I, I, I've always liked when I go into somebody's house, 
uh, wherever it is in the world, if they have a, just a piece of Althorpe. I mentioned earlier, people do tend to collect, but they might have a piece in a contemporary room. But the classical pieces, they work anywhere. And I, I've, I've always, and I think that's the same with history. You know, it is pure and it's from the past. And I think it's really important to know that it's not something that's closed the past. It's still relevant today. So true. Well, I'm going to ask you another question about brand and telling the brand story, but in particular for the designers that are on the call today. So how does a designer discover the heart of the brand story for their particular brand? I, I, I go back. This is not because of history. No, no, this is just a general one. I think authenticity is the key. And everyone knows what's authentic or not. You just get a sense of it. And so I think actually, again, touching on your presentation just now, you can meditate. And I don't mean you have to be cross-legged and doing it in a, in, a, in a structured way, but just at your desk, just close your eyes and think, what, what is your brand really? You know, what is it? And just don't deviate from that. You know, when I took over this house, I mean, I had, I had a fairly complicated uh, relationship with, a, uh, with my stepmother. And part of it stemmed from the fact that she decorated quite a lot of the rooms in quite a, in quite a sort of uh, unusual way. And I, I, I was very young, as I mentioned, I was 27. And I was conscious that the brand of the house had shifted very awkwardly. And the house felt embarrassed. It was not being true to itself. I was not too proud to call in much more uh, experienced eyes than mine. And there's this wonderful man who was a, a, a sort of... Uh, expert of some note in the country house world. And I said, I, I took him around and we sort of shook our heads in disbelief at some of what had happened. But at least it was superficial. You know, you, you, there was nothing structural. And I said, well, what do I do? And he said, you've got a job on your hands. He said, but remember this, good taste is authenticity and authenticity is good taste. And yeah, that sounds very obvious and very trite, but actually there, there is the nub of a brand. It's about authenticity. That will give you good taste in whatever your field is. You know, it may be minimalist this, or it may be African patterns, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe old colonial style, whatever. Just stick to that. And if you're going to play with it at all, play with it honestly, because the consumer, the client will, will sniff it out if you're, if you're trying to pull a fast one. Consumers in all directions now are incredibly sophisticated. They like brands that resonate because they really have something behind them. Well, storytelling is so important. So what's next for Althorpe Living History Collection? Well, obviously, like everyone else, you know, the, the pandemic's made up, our plans change quite a lot. I'm going to High Point Market in, uh, in North Carolina in uh, October. Last April, just, just now, they, they sort of soft launched some of the furniture. But I go once every two years and I'm there for two or three days and, and, and meet a lot of people. And they, they do a really good job, a huge amount of room, uh, square footage showing off these rooms. I must say the first time I went to High Point, it was quite daunting because I walked in and there was, yeah, that was all my furniture. But all the furniture was in different places to the original house here. So I felt it was almost like a madman had broken into my house and rearranged the furniture. <laughs> um, but it was, it was still 
amazing to see that this is all ready to launch around the world. You know, I wasn't, I hadn't really thought it through. And then there'll be more travel when that's possible. Um, I've been all over the States. I honestly can't think of a state I haven't been to apart from Alaska where this furniture has, has been. And it's been fantastic, you know, and, and, and what an adventure for the furniture and, and what a wonderful celebration of the past uh, and making it relevant now. You know, people say that this sort of furniture has no place. Well, that's just not true. I, I'm sure it's the same in the States as everywhere else. You know, it's stunning how little these auction, uh, you know, a lovely piece of old brown wood is going for at auction. But these beautifully made, better than the original often, uh, pieces are very welcome in people's houses. And actually, in, in the introduction, you mentioned, uh, your introducer mentioned how Paul Maitland Smith, who was behind this, set about making pieces that were as good as the originals. He, totally unbeknownst to him at the time, there have been pieces of Paul Maitland Smith's furniture that have been in Sotheby's and Christie's catalogs as the real thing because they look so good. You know, you're dealing with a master now. Although he's retired, the craftsmanship's still there. And um, it was very important to me that the factory was top, top notch. And it's in the Philippines and the upholstery is from uh, America, but the, the Philippines does the, the wood work. And I had to learn, you know, the Philippines is the best place in that part of the world uh, for this sort of manufacture because they still have the French system of apprenticeship, uh, the pride that goes into the product. These are pieces that will last generations. And, and that's very important to me. I, I, I couldn't possibly have got into business because at the end of the day, that's what it is. I could not have got into business with somebody who was just going to quickly knock up some pieces and sell them out there. They have to bring luster to my family's name. And, and, and that's really important. I'd rather have done nothing than have done a bad job. And I think that's true to every brand. Well, here's a question from um, the audience, and they're wondering how you can help people appreciate antiques more. I think that's a great question. I think the only way is through history stories, you know, it, it, it's connecting with the past. The easy part for us is that these, because I've already mentioned the way that these pieces have passed muster generation after generation. So I, it's, not, it's not for me to say they are handsome or beautiful or whatever, because they sort of self-evidently are. I can say that because I had nothing to do with any of it. I just look after it. So what do you want to do to take them away from the more disposable sorts of furniture? I think you, you have to stress the durability of the construction and of the design. You know, these are pieces that are still going to be, uh, have a place in a hundred years time. And I actually said to Theodore Alexander, I was teasing them. I said, you're making instant heirlooms. And they are, you know, these are pieces. I, 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 as I mentioned, I love contemporary as well. I really do. And there's a place for everything. But don't forget good old traditional. Because also I, I see the prices here in the showrooms and they're coming back. You know, the, the good stuff is coming back. There's an awful lot of stuff. I, I can't believe it. I don't know if any of your, uh, I, I've, been, I've become addicted to buying online as well because it's so fascinating during this time. And, and, and the bargains you can get are extraordinary. And it does show that there is, there is a strata of old furniture that's not really worth the effort. But if you just go for something that's really beautifully made, then, then, then I think it, it holds its value as well. So that, that's very important. 
And by the way, another idea is, and I don't know if you'll do this, but we would love to have see you at High Point, maybe with your book for a book signing. Yeah, I'm doing that actually. Thank you. I am doing that. Um, I've got a couple. They, they do a couple of events. Uh, they do one a year where it's a, a charity event, and I think I'm the, the speaker at their charity this year in the middle of October. It's around the 16th of October or something. Great. Well, we go to market every. October. So I think we have maybe one more question. Here's this was a little bit different. So how do you feel when historic pieces are being reinterpreted or refinished in a bold manner? So for example, a hundred year old piece of furniture instead of being restored is being lacquered in bold, high gloss lacquer. I don't have a problem with that. Look, if it if it's a museum standard piece, probably not, but we're not talking about that here. We're talking about people enjoying the piece. And, you know, you, you may fall in love with the design, the bones of it, but want your own flourish. And I think that's great. You know, while, while I've been researching this, it's, it's been so intriguing to me. We've got these classically English, a set of 42 chairs, which were made by Chippendale's rival, a man called Seddon, less famous, but just as accomplished in the 1700s. And it's always in my lifetime been covered in this sort of burgundy leather, the seat. Looking back at it, it's been a very vibrant green in the past. It's been all sorts of things which we would think quite dazzling. I think we have to remember that we often are dealing with the rather faded and jaded end of antiques now. And things were sparklier. So for instance, anything that was gilded in the past was likely to have been very, very uh, blingy. And that was because a lot of it was being enjoyed at nighttime. Um, if you've seen Bridgerton and Bulls and Bridgerton or Downton Abbey, these were being done by, uh, uh, lit by a candle and not electricity, of course. So you needed your gold to glisten. Uh, that was the point of it. My real answer is we've got used to seeing things in a certain way. And it's very easy to think of traditional being fuddy-duddy. It doesn't have to be. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I'm going to encourage our audience to unmute and uh, clap for you because we, mm-hmm. if that's one way we can appreciate you taking your time today. We are so grateful that you took your time away on a Saturday to join us and to share your wonderful storytelling. Thank you. Oh, it's been great fun. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Love it. That's wonderful. Well, enjoy the rest of the event, and I've been delighted to be a small part of it. So thank you all. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to purchase a copy of Charles Spencer's newest book, The White Ship, you can order it on Amazon. Be sure to mark your calendars for our three-day planning challenge coming up December 1st through the 3rd. Registration opens soon. Next week, interior designer Cody Beal, founder and principal designer for Cody Beal Interior Design, located in Salt Lake City, Utah, will be joining us. We can't wait to see you next week. Mm-hmm.